This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Feud, Capote versus the Swans, is the latest reimagining of historical events produced by Ryan Murphy. The series follows famed author Truman Capote, who hobnobs with a close-knit circle of New York socialites known as the Swans. Think the Real Housewives of 1965. But then he embarrasses them by airing their dirty laundry in the pages of Esquire magazine, and things get nasty. The Swans are deliciously played here by actors like Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, and Chloe Sevigny. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Aisha Harris, and today we're talking about Feud, Capote versus the Swans on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Joining me today is Kristen Meinzer. She co-hosts The Daily Fail, a podcast that does comedic close readings of the tabloids. Welcome back, Kristen. Thanks for having me back. Also here is comedian Guy Branham from the Apple show Platonic. Welcome back to you too, Guy. Hello. Good to be here, Aisha. Well, in Feud, Capote versus the Swans, Tom Hollander plays author Truman Capote, who found fame and success for his books Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood. Truman spends the 1960s and early 70s gallivanting among New York's high society. In particular, he befriends a group of narcissistic middle-aged women he affectionately refers to as his swans. His closest confidant is Babe Paley, a former Vogue editor played by Naomi Watts. The only one who read all the disgust in his story... He finds us disgusting, baby. The feud in question here emerges after Esquire publishes Truman's book excerpt from his supposedly forthcoming novel. It's a catty and thinly veiled dramatization of the lady's personal dramas, and the piece causes a scandal. Truman's ostracized by the swans. He's distraught. He spirals more deeply into alcohol addiction and a creative drought in the final years of his life. This season of Feud was written by John Robin Bates, who created Brothers and Sisters, and most of the episodes were directed by Gus Van Sant. Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, is airing on FX and streaming on Hulu. So Glenn, let's start with you. What did you think of this show? I ended up admiring this because it's hard not to admire it, the work, the research, the production design, the performances. We'll talk about the performances. Just wished it was more fun. Mm. I kind of wish I enjoyed it more. And I'm not out here, the gay guy saying, look, why can't this, you know, very sad story of self-destruction and and addiction and pain and betrayal, why can't it be more campy and over the top? And I'm not saying that entirely. (laughs) I'm not not saying that. (laughs) I mean, in my defense, like that opening credit sequence, the animated opening credit sequence, in terms of tone, that is writing a check that this show does not seem interested in, in cashing. I mean, like... It goes hard and the show doesn't. But I think it's worth unpacking that because, look, this is, as you mentioned, it's a Ryan Murphy show, but only on paper, right? He's only executive producing this season. He didn't write any of these episodes. He didn't direct any of them. So I think there are people out there who might be skipping this because they think, oh, Ryan Murphy, I know what he does. I'll get two episodes in and then some gay ghost alien Nazis will show up and then he'll go right (laughs) off the rails. If you were avoiding this because of his too much of a muchness, I would say for me there was not enough of an enoughness here. I wanted something dishy and filled with quips and banter and waspishness. But this show turns out to be very mournful and melancholic and it's about regret and self-loathing. And like the the eighth episode does go a little banana pants, but for the first seven – This show is downright stayed, is the word I keep coming back to, restrained. 
and a bit repetitive, mm. which makes sense, I guess, because if you have anybody in your life who's who struggled with alcohol addiction or any kind of addiction, the cycle is is kind of how their life conforms. Like that's their narrative, right? The, the cycle, the repetitiveness is a, is a thing, which is the only reason I could figure out why the show might fragment its narrative the way it does by not presenting the story chronologically, maybe to ameliorate some of that repetitiveness. I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that because I didn't understand why it was being told the way it was. Yeah. In the end, though, I got the sense that this was definitely, despite all those logistical, maybe because of all those logistical distractions, that maybe this was four episodes of story stretched out over eight episodes of TV. Yes. So it sounds like this was less Real Housewives and more Douglas Sirk, but not quite as juicy as Douglas Sirk. Not as juicy as <laughs> Douglas Sirk. It was Sirkless. Got it. Got it. Okay. Guy, how about you? What do you What do you make of this? And what do you make of that repetitiveness that Glenn is is mentioning here? I don't understand it. I really think that the performances here and like the the research and the craft is like so amazing. It was thrilling to get to watch these great actors portraying these icons of the New York social scene who I had heard about but never entirely understood. But yeah. the television making was confounding. Essentially, all plot points happen in the first episode and a half. Uh-huh. That first episode is a juicy banger, but then I, I want it to go somewhere. Yeah. This show, at its best, I mean, is what if Our Real Housewives were written by a dude who had been shortlisted for the Pulitzer twice? Like, what, <laughs> you know, what would it be like if the Countess and Ramona had, like, truly delicious lines But you don't get enough of it, and the Countess would never allow six and a half episodes to go by (laughs) without making more trouble than than we get here. Um, (laughs) And I just kind of don't understand it. Yeah. I'm sensing a theme here. But Kristen, first, I want to hear what your thoughts are. I want to second what everyone here has said so far about this show being kind of all over the place and not juicy enough and... Glenn, you didn't want to say it, but I'm just going to say it. It should be more campy. It should be more fun. This is a show about people who have an elevated sense of self-importance, whose obsessions with outer image, and whose superficiality deserves to be mocked. Let's have fun with these people. They are ridiculous. Capote thought they were ridiculous, even as he admired them and loved them. He knew how ridiculous they were. Let's have fun with how ridiculous they are. In the first episode, we get only a tiny smidgen of that. And I thought, oh, maybe as we go on, we'll get more of it. But it just ends after the first episode. There are a couple of funny lines in the first episode about, oh, Princess Margaret, you know, her mother. (laughs) I like her, but her kids are the worst, you know? And and I thought, okay, I laughed a couple times in the first episode. And then I don't think I laughed again in any of the subsequent episodes. And I thought, there are so many missed opportunities here. Why not have fun with this? I'll agree, though, with what's been said about it is beautiful to look at. Mm. These are A-list actors doing the best they can with not much to work with. I loved that kind of Kodak magic cube aesthetic, the colors, the tones, Mm -hmm. all of that. I thought that was very well done, but it just lacked fun. Mm. I wanted to have fun watching this and I did not have fun. Yeah. It's it's very, very dour and depressing. Mm -hmm. Two things that I kept coming back to while watching this were like, 
lots of slow motion, like very mm-hmm. dramatic slow motion. It might as well have been like a um, Sofia Coppola movie or something. Like, there's a <laughs> lot of that going on. But then, you know, I think for me, the, the closest it came to being kind of fun and also kind of giving off that we're trying to make this connection to the Real Housewives aesthetic is the third episode, which was like highly fictionalized. The best uh, one, yeah. This is playing fast and loose where the creators imagine that the Maisel brothers are filming the creation of the black and white ball, the infamous black and white ball that he, uh, Truman Capote, threw in honor of Kay Graham. And what I really enjoyed about this is that it shows how the big difference between them and reality stars and especially like wealthy people of today is that like they wanted to keep all of their stuff private. And the entire time while he's filming this documentary, all the women are like looking at the camera like, why are you here? I don't want you hearing any of this. This is an an invasion of my privacy. A lot of the themes are all kind of just summed up into this one episode completely. There's one that is recurring where they're talking about how there's this connection between gay men and older women. And I want to play a short clip uh, here where one of the Maisels is asking Babe about this connection. There seems to be a natural connection between gay men and very glamorous women. Why do you think that is? Well, we see the importance of presentation. It's how we defend ourselves. Underneath, though, is someone who's just trying to control their environment. It's a defense. I mean, this is kind of repeated in the multiple conversations. Yeah. But did, did you feel like even though there is repetition, that the show itself is getting to some sort of idea around that connection between gay men and women or... If the show tries to do anything interesting, it's re-examine the idea of gay man as accessory, which is something that is now, you know, Miley thanked her main gaze at the Grammys, and we all implicitly knew that those are the people who make her beautiful, that they are a service position, that they uh, exist to worship and heighten her. And the Mm. thing is, is there were moments when there were glimpses of something really magical going on. The fact that this show was able to say that Babe Paley and Truman Capote's relationship was something real and powerful in both of their lives was cool. But the vast majority of the time, it really was playing in a lexicon about these things that is from the 1960s. There was this iconic article in the New York Times calling out Capote and Tennessee Williams and basically saying, like, these unnatural venomous creatures are giving us a portrait of women that is, like, gross and unnatural. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of that in in this show and not a lot of 2024 reevaluation of it. Mm. Yeah. This show is full of characters who make the kind of pronouncements that characters and plays make when they cross to the front of the stage to address the audience. To be a woman <laughs> is to blah, 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 blah. Nobody yes. writes that except for a gay man writing about women. Exactly. <laughs> the thing about forgiveness is blah, 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 blah. The relationship between women and gay men. And I mean, it's hard to begrudge that because some of these monologues are awful chewy and there are not a lot of roles for actors of that age, of that of that gender. And there's, you know, they don't come off like cartoon characters. I kind of wanted them to a little bit more maybe. Maybe that yeah. would have been more fun. They are trying to layer it, I suppose. Yeah, but also all of those repeated proclamations aren't showing us what we need to be seeing emotionally between these characters because they're just reasserting it. Yeah, Exactly. You know, we all know the rule of writing show don't tell, but they're doing a lot Mm -hmm. of telling, but not showing. We're not seeing 
why Truman and Babe love each other so deeply and intimately that these are the names on their lips on their deathbeds. We're not seeing that. We're getting proclamations about the importance of keeping up appearances and so on. And I read a book recently called The Swans of Fifth Avenue by Melanie Benjamin, which, by the way, the series is not based on. It's a Mm. completely different book, but it really tries to explore the depth of why do these people love each other? Why do they keep relying on each other? Why do they, when they die, think, I wish this person was here with me? We don't really get that. We just get those proclamations. So even though they're trying to be sad and deep in the show, they won't show us what to be sad and deep over. Yeah. Yeah. I'm already seeing some backlash against Hollander's performance. And I just want to say here, as someone who's old enough to remember Capote on those talk shows that are referenced here, just Google Capote and Merv Griffin and and have an afternoon. But like, I know there are young people out there who think that Tom Hollander has to be exaggerating, has to be caricaturing. Right? The real Capote. This is a hate crime against Capote. Let me tell you, he is nailing it. Yeah. Ooh, mustn't scrub too hard, big mama. Lord knows you have such thin skin. And you're positively transparent. <laughs> Isn't it fun to banter with an old friend who really knows how you tick? Must be so dreadfully boring being a woman alone at your age. Capote's persona was a persona. It was a performance. But it was also who he was. Mm-hmm. Because... Southern culture has never embraced homosexuality. I'm not saying it has, but it leaves this weird place, this weird space for it, a slot for a certain breed, as it were, of performative, public-facing male queerness, white male queerness, I should say. But there is this prescribed role in the hierarchy for the fop, the sissy, the Southern dandy, right? Non-threatening gayness, keep the swishiness. Play up the swishiness, but keep the gay sex, you know, completely off screen, buried in coyness and innuendo. And Capote not only recognized that, but sought to fulfill that. And that extended to New York society. And I think the best thing about the show is its thesis, which you can accept or or reject, this notion that society at this moment is losing its rigidity and power. And those slots just aren't slotting anymore for these women, which means also that they're not going to slot for him, that that dandy role is not going to exist anymore. And he recognizes that and he turns on them because they can't nurture and protect him anymore. And so he's kind of like Peter denying Jesus three times. Like he, he wants to be out in front distancing himself from them. And I think that was the most interesting thing about the show. Yeah. I would like to hard counterpoint on Tom Hollander's performance. Okay. Okay. I think the outfit was always wearing him. Mm. Okay. Yes, Truman Capote was a performance, but I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Capote was able to understand the way that a gay man being too much is both a burden and a performance. Uh To me, a recent example of somebody who really got it was Coleman Domingo in Rustin, because Mm -hmm. like 30 seconds into that performance, I was like, what is he doing? And then (laughs) I realized like, no, he is playing a gay man. He is playing a gay man who always had to carry that voice around and has to use that identity for everything that he does. And with Tom Hollander, I always felt like he was a little too proud of the performance and was not understanding the way that you have to live in that voice for everything. Mm, I mean, there are moments that are magic. When he says of William Paley's plane, what a pretty plane. I was (laughs) in heaven. Cheers. Lovely to have you. What a pretty plane. (laughs) Yeah, more of that. It's interesting. I, I guess I fall in between both of you 
me not being a gay man, like, take that as as you will. But, like, (laughs) I do wonder how much of that is Tom Hollander's performance versus, like, what the script is allowing him to do. Because Mm -hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Capote, like, obviously that is a very different story being told versus Mm -hmm. what we are getting here, which is highly just focused on his relationship and his very, like, parasocial and parasitic relationship with these women and how it basically leads to his downfall. I wonder how much of that is is him versus the script just not letting him explore that dynamic at all. To Kristen's earlier points, like this is a TV show about is it wrong that he traded on these women's sadness that is about trading on these women's sadness. It yeah. should be <laughs> camp. Like it should mm-hmm. be camp. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like it is possible that if he was given smaller moments to work with or bigger moments to work with, we would have had something to fall in love with. But I would say that his performance, like the TV show, ends up in these middle places where it mm. feels like it's not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. The only other thing that that really kind of <laughs> bugged me, and I'm curious, you know, obviously there was a lot of research that went into this, but there was also a lot of fudging of truths or whatever truths may be. And this episode, as of the time this show is dropping, has not aired yet. But there is an entire episode where he has a fictional, from my understanding, a fictional lunch with James Baldwin. It didn't actually happen or occur in this way. And it basically recounts pretty much everything we already Again, it's the repeating, it's the reiterating. Mm-hmm. But then it ends, the whole. we figure out that the whole reason James Baldwin is there, and James Baldwin is played by Chris Chalk, is so that he can hype him up at the end and be like, you are too good for this. You have squandered all your talent. And let's call it what it is. He is the magical Negro in this episode. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. He's also the evil Negro. In a way, though, too, right? Mm, because he's yeah. essentially whispering in his ear, you need to take advantage of these women. You need to take mm, these women mm. down. And yeah. in a way, that takes some of the agency away from Truman, where it's like, well, James Baldwin told me that I should destroy these women, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and also, like, these venomously racist women, you see moments of it, but they really are holding in place a social system that does not have place for people of color, that has a deeply conditional place for queer people. And there were actual things like the guest list of the black and white ball was noteworthy for so many things, including more entertainers and people of color than normally came to those sort of society things, you know, mixing Hollywood and Upper East Side society. But this TV show doesn't talk about any of that stuff. It is just the same question over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the writers just wanted to write this thing for fun and and it just kind of falls flat in in, in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> the show did not know whether it thought that genius was more important than personal relationships and you have to burn some bridges to make some art. It didn't know if human relationships are more important than anything else and you need to preserve them at all costs, even if it means, you know, not committing to your manuscript. It needed to make a choice to be successful. I would say it was successful. Exactly one thing. And that is playing Molly Ringwald as Joanne Carson as Dorit. Like, just letting, <laughs> letting her be the cutaway joke. Oh, my God. A rich woman from Los Angeles? Like, <laughs> it, does she even know what class is? Like, <laughs> there were shreds and moments when I got the feeling of how fun this show could have been. What yeah. color is that? Putty? I mean, that's it. That's it. More of that. More of that. <laughs> 
Here, here. I, I think for me, the thing that made me the most happy is just seeing all of these women, uh, Diane Lane and, and Chloe Sevigny and, and Calissa Flockhart. It's a similar thing. Like when I see, you know, a Tyler Perry movie and I'm yes. like, oh, Viola Davis is, is getting work. I'm so happy. Like <laughs> Similar feeling here. I'm glad this exists. Getting work. Well, we want to know what you think about Feud, Capote versus the Swans. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. And up next, we'll be talking about what's making us happy this week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Third Love. Third Love makes solutions for every bra problem. Give yourself more lift, smoothing, and get straps that stay put. Every style's wear tested on real women, made from premium materials, with a virtual fitting room to help you find your perfect fit. Comfort and support are guaranteed. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Planning a party or honoring a recent grad? Whatever the celebration, Whole Foods Market can make things easy, starting with some delicious marinated steaks, always antibiotic and hormone-free. Simple and easy eats are ready in the prepared foods department. And for dessert, how about a luscious berry chantilly cake? Not in the mood to cook? Their catering menu offers festive options ready to order online at shop.wfm.com. Start every celebration at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. And now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, What's Making Us Happy. Kristen, let's start with you. What is making me happy this week is season five of Fargo. It just wrapped up last month, and I loved this show. So season five follows a young married mother played by Juno Temple, who it turns out escaped years earlier from an abusive cult-like marriage from a brutal man played by John Hamm. In the first episode of the season, he tracks her down. And throughout the season, we see her trying to repeatedly liberate herself from his henchmen and from his grasp. She does so with great cleverness and fierceness and at certain points, brute force. And it is so fun to cheer for her because she is so tiny and so smart (laughs) and so kind and so clever all at the same time, while John Hamm is just this larger-than-life kind of very violent sort of Marlboro man sort of guy Mm, who is just there with his horse and his gun ready to destroy anybody in his path, especially the women in his life, and to see her fight back and to fight and fight, it's just such a rush And I watched the whole thing in three days, and I still cannot stop thinking about it. It was delicious. It was beautifully shot. It was weird. It was quirky. It was all the best things that we want from Fargo. Again, that's season five of Fargo, which is on FX and Hulu. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kristen. Guy, what's making you happy? Aisha, Britain has a lot of game shows, and they are all amazing in their way. 
but mm-hmm. the hardest by far of all British game shows, Only Connect, just finished its 19th season. It is an impossibly difficult quiz show where you have to find the connections between four seemingly unrelated things. A hammer and a feather, six American flags, Eugene Shoemaker's ashes, and two golf balls. What do they have in common? (laughs) Those are the things we left on the moon. A quarter of the questions are impossible because they're about something deeply British, like Blue Peter or the highway system. (laughs) But it's so much fun. And the host, Victoria Corin Mitchell, is very possibly the best presenter we have in, in television today. Please, if you like the joy of being stumped, go watch some. Oh my goodness. I do have a life-size cardboard cutout of Victoria Corin Mitchell in my office. Oh my okay, goodness. Okay, <laughs> listeners can't see it, but it, it is indeed life-size. <laughs> as, as someone who is kind of obsessed with the New York Times Connections game, this actually sounds like mm-hmm. right up my alley. So, Look, there have been speculations by Ms. Corin Mitchell that mm-hmm. there was uh, something other than dual creation going on there. Uh, Well, you know, who can say? (laughs) Well, that is the British game show Only Connect. Glenn, what is making you happy this week? So uh, Siren Survive the Island is a Korean competitive reality series on Netflix. You get six teams of four badass women who compete against each other in a kind of what is just an extended high stakes version of Capture the Flag. So there's a team of cops, there's a team of firefighters, security guards, Uh, Stunt performers, soldiers, and athletes, they're stranded on this island for seven days. There are cameras everywhere. And there are two kinds of competitions that they engage in. One is arena battles where they fight against each other to win perks. Then there are the thing that the show is really based on. It's the base battles where the team hides their flag somewhere on their base and then they go out and raid other bases or defend their own base from somebody else coming in. And they make alliances with other teams that have very short lifespans. And what I love about it is how simple and clear it is. There's no immunity idols. There's no like things to complicate anything. I mean, there is, to be fair, there is a store where they can purchase supplies based on how many calories they've burned the previous day. So a lot of the show (laughs) is them on treadmills and nothing about treadmills has ever been fun. It is just a perfect weekend binge. Ten episodes, you will develop very strong feelings about each and every player and even stronger feelings about how it ends. I'll leave it at that. So that is Siren Survive the Island on Netflix. Wow. Okay, that actually sounds like fun. I would actually want to participate in that. That's oh, it's cool. grueling. Oh, I would not. <laughs> well, maybe I not the treadmill part, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what's making me happy is, you know, lately I've been rewatching The Muppet Show as one does when as you does. need a pick me up. And I don't actually know when the last time I saw this episode was, but the Batula Clark episode from season two (laughs) and specifically the chicken saloon sketch, which uh, (laughs) Batula Clark is not a part of, but there's a saloon, there's chickens, Gonzo is bartending. There's no English human dialogue, but there's a lot of clucks, a lot of clucks. And, you know, a cigarette-smoking bad rooster enters and causes havoc. He harasses a female chicken and then gets into a shootout with the good rooster. And Gonzo narrowly escapes getting shot. It's just fun. Again, no words, just clucks. And all these faces, like, and they're all, the sound effects are ace and... Yeah, it just made me burst out laughing uncontrollably for like about two and a half, three minutes. So that is the chicken saloon sketch. I don't know if there's a 
proper name for that sketch, but that's what I'm calling it. And it's in uh, season two of The Muppet Show, the Petula Clark episode. And you can find that streaming on Disney+. Plus. So that's what's making me happy this week. And if you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Kristen Meinzer, Guy Branham, and Glenn Weldon, thanks so much for being here. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima, Skylar Swenson, and Mike Katzoff, and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Aisha Harris, and we'll see you all next week. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity, tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.